1: visit hellotend.com
0: slash sale. That's hello com slash sale. And book your free consult today.
2: A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on May 12th 2021. I am your host, Dana Garcia, and our guest today is Dana Goodyear, an author and a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine. Dana's year long investigation into the Malibu Creek murder, where a dad was fatally shot while camping with his two young daughters, has been turned into an incredible article at the New Yorker, plus a podcast called Lost Hills. Welcome, Dana. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Here's what we're looking at. Authorities have found the mummified body of a woman believed to be a cult leader. Her body was found in a Colorado home. The body was reportedly decorated in Christmas lights, glittery eye makeup, and then posed in some kind of a shrine, according to authorities. Authorities believe that the corpse had been driven from California to Colorado in a small SUV with five followers. Yeah, very bizarre. Our other case is Dana's investigation. This is the investigation into the murder of the dad who was camping in the idyllic hills above Malibu. It now appears that murder may be linked to a series of shootings in the area. Could that murder have been avoided if the public had been warned by the police that there was the potential of a serial shooter on the loose there in the park? A homeless man who claims himself who claims that he is a survivalist, has been arrested. And one more thing, we all know you've been following the bizarre case of the disappearance of the Colorado mom, Suzanne Morphew. There's been an arrest, really not a huge surprise for those of you who like to come up with theories, and we're going to have an update a little later in the program. Okay, let's get to our first case. Our first case is a really strange one out of Moffat, Colorado. A cult leader known as Mother God is believed to be dead, found in a mummified state. Uh, And seven of her followers have been arrested, but they have not been charged with murder or in any way having anything to do with her death. And we don't really know the cause of death yet. So let's start with the mummy part of this because this, this case has so many moving parts. Leah Amy Carlson was the spiritual leader of a group known as Love Has Won. It's a good name. Amy Carlson, according to her children, abandoned the family that she had at the time. And she was working at McDonald's to create this group 15 years ago. Amy claimed to have been reincarnated more than 500 times. And in her past lives, she was Jesus and Marilyn Monroe. She claimed to be 19 billion years old. And I would say she looks fantastic for 19 billion. I mean, without question. So she got a lot of notoriety when she went on the Dr. Phil show. And I I do want to talk about the crime and everything else. But I think we kind of need to understand Amy, her background and her life to maybe understand the circumstances under which her body was found. So here's a clip from the Dr. Phil show.
1: What is a cult? (laughs) A cult, like, is not transparent. Point blank. I'm transparent.
2: Okay, so that's Amy in her own words. Amy was 45 at the time of her death. And just how she died and where she died remains fuzzy. Investigators say that they haven't even been able to positively ID her yet. However, they do believe this is Amy, and they believe she's been dead at least for a few weeks. So that's a little bit of background there. Now let's talk about what the corpse looked like, because again, this all fits into a pattern here, Dana. I mean, it's, it's almost as if you are incredible and unbelievable in life, as in death based on what authorities found. Okay, so here's what we have. Um, the corpse, according to the police who found it, say that Amy's body was wrapped in Christmas lights. Clearly a modern-day reference to the birth of the baby Jesus, you know? I mean, think about it. She said she was Jesus, okay? So there could be some symbolism there. Her eye sockets were actually missing her eyes, but instead had, um, like, glitter makeup it, on and around the eye sockets. The body was in a sleeping bag, which was on a bed surrounded by some kind of a shrine. So, how did investigators find this gruesome scene? It's always interesting to me how cases reveal. Dana, I always like it when the people go straight to the police, which, <laughs> right? <laughs> it really didn't take a lot of detective work here. Man walks into the police department and says, There is a mummy in my house, and there are people holding my child, and um, the person who's dead is a a former cult leader. So, I mean, you can imagine the police looking at this man and thinking, yeah, right.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah. I I just think when when you think about the condition that you're describing that her remains were found in, it also is, it's just so... um, Gosh, it's so ticky-tacky. I hate to say it, but it's like Christmas lights and glitter. It just—it feels like you know. Often these cult figures are really reflections of what's going on in our in our in our culture. Uh, you know, our pop culture in a weird way. I mean, there's something that is. Um, it's really shimsham. It's really like... Very look,
2: 99 cent
1: store, right? <laughs> yeah. And w- when you look at also her, I mean, the house itself looked like pretty humble, the images of the house where she was found, and 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 yet she claimed to be, you know, have conducted a hundred thousand sort of remote spiritual surgeries and healed people from cancer and various things. And also some of those, um, the price tags on some of those quote unquote surgeries were really high and you don't know, was this bogus? Was she really getting hundreds of thousands of dollars from people or was she claiming to have gotten all this money? It's, there's this kind of contradiction and it sort of feels like, you know, the wizard of Oz behind the curtain situation and, there she was, this sort of shriveled up little wizard behind this curtain. And, you know, those YouTubes, the YouTube channel that her followers had, and that all looked kind of glamorous. You know, they were these attractive young women who would be speaking on her behalf and kind of putting her message out there. And she had a way of making things look kind of um, appealing. And then Just how um, grisly and sort of, you know, pathetic the end was, I think, is, uh, I don't know. I've always had a theory of our
2: times. (laughs) I've always had a theory about cults that they attract more of the affluent than they do the poor. Because, frankly, poor don't have time for this. You know, you just don't have time to run away and support a cause when you have very basic, basic needs, that doesn't mean that it doesn't, but you tend to find the more affluent or people with resources coming from families with resources. I, I I always find that fascinating. And think about it. It's a machine that needs to be fed in some way, whether it's through access, money, um, skills. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite the group. And, uh, you know. There may be, she made claims that she worked with all sorts of celebrities as well. We have no idea. Um, Let's get back to how police found out about it. So a man believed to be a member of the group walked into the sheriff's station to report that there was this body. And this, this is all taking place in the last week of April. Miguel Lamboy claimed that he had come home and all of a sudden there was this dead person, which would be the cult leader. And he did tell authorities that he was a member of the cult. And then several other members who had kind of like just appeared and brought her corpse. Miguel said he tried to leave the house with his two-year-old son. And he claims that the cult members prevented him from taking the child. And so that's really why he went to the authorities he wanted his child back. So when so while the authorities are hearing the rest of his story, they're like, well, let's just go do a welfare check on the kid. Because you can, you know, cops are generally like, yeah, right, sure, there's a lady tied up in Christmas lights. Um, and that's when they realize that they find seven adults, two children, and the corpse. The seven adults were charged with abuse of a corpse and child abuse because of the two children in the home, presumably living with a dead body. Miguel, who went to the authorities, was not charged and he was reunited with his son. The others explained to the authorities they were part of love has won and that they were rejoicing that their leader had finally ascended. So what's interesting here, and the New York Times has written about this is, is there kind of an upside here to the cult? Because if the whole process of ascension might very well support the beliefs and the the goals of the cult— But what I think we often find is the leader is always charismatic and that without the charismatic leader, it is very hard to hold a group like that together afterwards.
1: Yeah. And how many followers are there in reality? I mean, when you- Reality is the key question. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you go down the rabbit hole, I mean, you know, the websites are down. You can't find out that much about the cult right now, but- it's always the same few people who are being presented. So to me, that's sort of a signal that maybe this was, you know, the Wizard of Oz type of thing where like there's a big show and it's very easy to do that with social media and internet culture to front as something more than you are. But, you know, they, I also think it's interesting them the movements of the cult over the sort of past few years. And there are a lot of different locations where they were kind of alighting a little group of followers with, you know, mother God, and then and then being protested and kicked out. I mean, they were kicked out of Hawaii during the pandemic. I think they showed up on Kauai, and then neighbors somehow knew and protested their presence there. Um, they were up in Mount Shasta, and I think a similar thing happened. I think they were kind of run out of town a few times, um, unclear why, whether people were aware of them through the internet or knew people who had become involved or embroiled in the cult, or whether their behavior in these towns, was um, irritating or or disconcerting to people, so that they were kicked out. That's that's all a little bit unclear. They were based in Colorado, though. So she was, I guess the the body was kind of being brought back to the the headquarters of Love Has Won,
2: right? And the one of the things that they allegedly did in Hawaii that really angered people was she claimed to be the reincarnation of a Hawaiian god and so the indigenous of hawaii were insulted and infuriated by this and they had to have a police escort to get off the island whether they left left voluntarily they were pushed out everyone agreed it was time to go so definitely not welcome there and and what you said about mount shasta is a local newspaper up there is claiming that they think Amy died in California along the Oregon border and then was driven um, to Moffitt. So Moffitt is this like tiny little town. It's got 116 people. So it's not very big, but what is important is that it's only 13 miles from the group's headquarters in Crestone, Colorado. So I think that's the reason she was there. And, the the community around their headquarters has never been happy about them being there because there have been allegations made that the cult and or the leader were abusive toward members. And that isn't really shocking. It's something that you hear a lot. These are allegations, but these are that you hear a lot in conjunction. It comes with the allegations of brainwashing and control, that they're both mental and physical in order to keep order within a group like this.
1: Yeah. And I think that that is really common, right? The breaking people down physically and emotionally in order to then fill that void with your charismatic teachings. And one of the things that I learned about this, about uh, love as one is about the sleep deprivation and I think that's really interesting. I mean, that's what happens to prisoners too when they're, you know, being interrogated, and the interrogators are trying to break them and get information out of them. Sleep deprivation is a is a, a basic tool in that context, and it sounds like there was a kind of maximum five hours of sleep a night, and then a lot of physical labor. The people, the images I've seen of people who were in the cult um, look pretty emaciated and. Um, even, you know, Amy herself has a kind of, um, I don't know, a kind of invalid look. And I think she spent long periods of time in bed, claimed to need to be pushed around in a wheelchair. I don't know what her actual illness was. On that Dr. Phil thing, her sisters said that she struggled with alcoholism. Some of the tape of her is, you know, she definitely seems not, um, not sober, I don't know if she seems drunk or something else, but mm-hmm. there's a there's a a real ragged intensity to the way that she's you know yelling at her followers. So it, it seems clear that there's definitely a kind of emotional abuse. And then you have these young women saying these rapturous things about her. And I think it's just super interesting also that the tagline of the group seems to be God is a woman which you did is like, it's like the age of Aquarius. Like, aren't we supposed to all be so enlightened once we all agree God is a woman? But in, if it's in this form, I, I'll pass. But <laughs> well,
2: There have been some reports that suggest she may have had cancer that could address um, the fact that she may not have looked well. And again, we don't know uh, what the cause of death was. We don't know if it was natural causes, if she was ill. We we really don't know yet. And I think that's going to be very important It will also be interesting when we get the medical examiner's report to not only learn that, but also what if anything else may have been done to the corpse? Do you know what I mean? Like as part of any ritual or anything. I'm kind of curious about that. Because if she'd only been dead a few weeks, how could she be so mummified? Like I don't think you mummify that quickly. I don't know. But I know you know, I I don't I
1: don't feel like I have a grasp on their basic premise other really?
0: than <laughs> other than
1: just you know what she said about herself. I mean it seemed like the it was a cult of personality seemingly and her kind of claims to you know be Marilyn Monroe reincarnated to be talking to the spirit of Robin Williams and you know to be Jesus to be all these sort of have had all these past lives and be an avatar of all of them that seems to be the only teaching uh, beyond that. I don't know what the I mean it probably falls into the loose category of doomsday cult, you know the bringing about the end of the world and her ascension being a a critical um phenomenon that is going to bring that about so i I think comparisons can be made to some of the other you know the Jim Jones types of mm-hmm. doomsday cults but but she's really light on the teachings as far as I can tell I mean there's just not a lot of um substance there which is what also to me the sort of like no eye glittery eye makeup but no eyeballs is kind of like the perfect symbol of that hollowness and sort of lack of substance
2: yeah i I definitely believe there was a lot of symbolism in the way she was enshrined if you will I, i think there's a lot more symbolism there well we are uh going to follow this case as we've said that no one has been charged with murder. However, authorities have said they believe there could be some additional charges, especially as they figure out where things happened, the transportation of things. So we're going to keep an eye on that one. Now on to our second case, Dana's investigation into the murder of 35-year-old Tristan Bodet of Irvine. Uh, you know, Dana, no one really expects that in a place like Malibu, that especially in, you know, this is a state campsite. It's not like you can just like, you know, if you're going to camp there, you have to register, you have to pay all this stuff. One presumes it's a pretty safe place. And this, I recall, having lived here in Southern California, it was shocking. It it was a shock to the system and our sense of security. How would you describe it?
1: Well, that was actually the initial hook for me into this story is that I live in, you know, I don't live in Malibu, but I don't live that far from Malibu Creek State Park. I take my own kids there. We had been talking in the months right before Baudette was killed about doing an overnight in that campground. And it just completely stunned me that not only that this happened, but that what came out quickly that after the murder was that there had been a number of shootings, even two in that very campground leading up to it, and the public didn't know. So the idea that that there was a potential cover-up, there was definitely more to this story than, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a domestic violence incident, which is what you know you might think of right away. Most people who Um, Our crime victims in places like state parks are victims of someone they know. But this one seemed completely random, although there were some perplexing rumors at first because of the kind of work that Tristan Baudet, the the father who was killed, he he worked as a polymer chemist and he did have um, a number of publications on vaccine development. So there was right away this kind of wild speculation when nobody knew what was going on that... Well, maybe he was the target of, you know, an anti-vaxxer, or maybe big pharma took him out. And it just it seemed one of the features of of the killing that was so odd was that it seemed so precise. It was both totally random seeming and also very precise because he was shot basically in the center of his forehead um, with a nine millimeter bullet. So that immediately conjures, oh my gosh, was this, you know, a handgun to the to the temple uh, or to the center of the forehead. And it turned out, and we can talk about this, that that it was not the type of weapon that was used um, according to the the law enforcement and the DA, but, um, and also probably in all likelihood, there was no connection at all between the victim and the killer. There's, there's certainly no connection between the victim and the alleged killer who is a, a drifter, Anthony Rauta.
2: So um, I- I'm curious, Dana, you, you talk about um, where he was shot. If you could paint a picture for us of the scene so we can have a better understanding because he it was, what, nearly three in the morning when this happened?
1: So I want you to picture a beautiful campground in a meadow tucked into the Santa Monica Mountains. You're a couple of miles from the beach, from Surfrider Beach, which everyone knows from Gidget. And everything else, <laughs> and and then you're in this you know beautiful wilderness area that uh, so many TV shows and movies have been filmed in this park. It was a it was a movie ranch before it was actually a state park. So if you you know if you know Mash that show, mm-hmm. there's the, the Mash Camp is there where um, you know it sort of it it doubled for for North Korea, and <laughs> the, uh, it is uh, a beautiful oak meadow nestled in the mountains and. It was full. It was uh, the summer solstice. It was the it was peak summer. You know there were families in every just about every spot in that campground. Um, and at about four thirty, four forty, 440, four forty five in the morning,
2: shots rang out. Did the person who killed Tristan Beaudet, did that person actually enter the tent or was he shot through the tent? And if he was shot through the tent. How in the world did he get such a precise hit?
1: The precision of the hit may have been a fluke. It, uh. it He was shot from outside of the tent. Um, nobody knows if the shooter approached the tent, lifted the dew flap, looked inside, then backed up and shot. We don't, nobody saw this. <laughs> there was, there were ear witnesses, but not eyewitnesses in a sense. And so, Bodet was in the tent with his two small children. They're two and four. The two-year-old couldn't even... Can't, at that point, she couldn't really talk even. And the four-year-old was, you know, confused and traumatized. So nobody saw anybody kill Tristan Bodet. People heard these shots. There were a couple of entry holes. A couple of bullets seemed to, seemed to have entered the tent. There was only one exit hole because the other bullet that entered the tent entered Bodet's head and then was lodged in his shoulder. The, the trajectory of the bullet was very strange, I think because probably because he was lying down um, at the time and just, you know, his daughters are nestled right in there with him when this happens. So the shooter escaped without being detected. The woman I talked to just recently called 911 and, you know, in fairly short order, there were police, uh, law enforcement, sheriff's deputies mostly swarming that campground. You know, then the rangers were there and then, the, you know, the paramedics and and Odette was declared dead that morning. Um, this all happened in the dark and whoever did it got away in the dark and knew the park very well is what law enforcement assumed.
2: Now, um, Baudette and his two daughters, they were also with other members of the family, and other members of the family were in a separate tent. So i am d- does the four-year-old, because now this happened in June, June of 2018, June 22nd of 2018. So my guess is, was there anything that the four-year-old was able to verbalize to authorities? And I'm sure she's still suffering tremendously at this point.
1: I don't know that her privacy has been well protected. Um Beaudet's brother-in-law was in the next tent or the next campsite over. They were on a dad's and kids camping trip. So so Scott McCurdy was in a tent with his two little boys who were 3 and 5 and he is the one Scott is the one who discovered his dear friend and brother-in-law dead because he heard the girls crying and he couldn't figure out why they were still crying and what was going on and why wasn't Tristan helping them. And he went into, into the tent and he discovered this horrific reality, which is that Tristan had been
2: killed. So Dana, at this point you have a clear murder. I mean, without question, this person was intentionally killed. There's all this speculation that maybe it has something to do with the fact of what he does for a living. And this could have been a targeted hit. It's also, you know, the idyllic location where nothing like this should happen. But as often happens, when something becomes public, people who either know something or remember something start coming forward. And this is, to me, the interesting dynamic here of of how this case had both an investigative component and then the journalism component, because people started coming forward to news organizations and saying, hey, wait a minute, I was shot at. Hey, wait a minute! My car was shot at, and and tell us what that ends up revealing about what authorities did and didn't know.
1: That's where things started to get really, really complicated and really interesting. Because, as you said, shortly after Bodet's murder, people started talking about experiences they had had, and it, it turned out that starting twenty months before the murder, there had been a series of Shootings. Now, they didn't all match up and line up perfectly. So it was pretty complicated. the The first victim who's now um on this list of um of charges that you know, the criminal charges against Anthony Rowda now begin with uh, a November two thousand and sixteen shooting in Malibu Creek State Park, but not in the campground. Somebody, um a young uh, hiker named Jimmy Rogers was just. I just slung a hammock between two trees. He was hiking the Backbone Trail, which is a long and somewhat disjointed trail that goes through the Santa Monica Mountains. And he didn't feel like, you know, making a reservation and paying fifty bucks to <laughs> sleep in the campground. He right. was he was on, the, you know, a big wilderness expedition. So he was sort of in this area of the park that's really for day use only and picnics. And and he and he woke up at about you know somewhere between three and five in the morning and. He had the memory of hearing a sound, but he couldn't kind of place it. And then he looked at his arm and his jacket was shredded and he was, his arm was stinging and he couldn't figure out, he thought he'd been bit by a rabid animal or he's a wildlife biologist. So he thought maybe it's vampire bats, which actually are a real thing that has migrated (laughs) up from, you know, their typical habitat range. And, uh, But he tried to report it and he just didn't make a lot of headway. I mean, there just didn't seem to be a ton of interest from authorities. He, a few weeks after this happened, he noticed that a little metal pellet started coming out of his arm. And that's when he thought, you know, I, this wasn't a rabid animal or a vampire bat. I've been shot. These are, these are like almost like metal BBs. And they were from a shotgun shell. Bird shot comes packed in like a plastic cartridge, lots and lots of little, metal balls and they are designed to scatter so that you can hit birds that are flying. And he, it turned out had been shot with a shotgun shell. There was that then the next two incidents were on the campground, also ammunition that appeared to have been fired from a shotgun. Then you have a shift in location out of the park and onto the road, the Canyon road that goes right by the park. So somebody standing in the park in a hidden location, firing at moving cars on the road, also in that same time period between three and five in the morning. Okay. All, of these, all of these incidents have, so they have more or less location in common. They have type of ammunition, more or less, something that could be fired by a shotgun. Most of them were birdshot. One of them was a, a metal slug, but it's also a shotgun shell. Then you have... One other feature in common of these first five near misses a single shot. So there were some people within the Lost Hill Sheriff Station, which is the local sheriff's station that has jurisdiction. They share jurisdiction with um, the Rangers in California State Park. But after the third park shooting, someone at the park called over to a buddy at Lost Hill Sheriff Station and said, Something weird is going on. There have now been, you know, the guy in the hammock, and then two, um, two campground shootings. It was just cars were shot; people weren't hit in those instances. But um, and so, therefore, some people within Lost Hill Sheriff Station got interested. Then, when the next two shootings happened on the road, it was definitely their jurisdiction, and they were starting to connect these dots. But they couldn't really get momentum within, the, you know, at the higher supervisory levels above them. To do a full blown investigation, bring in major crimes, get all the resources they might need. So they were sort of nursing this theory that I think there's a shooter. I think there's a Canyon shooter. And I always liken it to, like, as if, you know, 10 guys in the local sheriff's station believed in Bigfoot and everyone else was like, bull, there's no Bigfoot, you know, and they are trying to build this case, but just doing it a little bit on their own time and on their own steam. So then a year passes without another shooting, almost a year, 11 months.
2: And that and- I find interesting because, like, I, I hear you and I certainly understand, you know, Tristan's widow's position on this it, and, and the brother-in-law who went, if we had known about this, we wouldn't have gone. I totally, totally get that. I think though, you know, sometimes you can't see things when they're happening individually. You can only see things when you put them out as a big map. And I think that year-long gap, that's a challenge, right? That that's a challenge on the potential conspiracy part of this.
1: You're right. That did, and I think it, I think it also allowed some people to think, "Okay, let's not make a big deal about this. It stopped." Right. So, what's the problem? It stopped. So we had some Shootings we can't figure out. Maybe it was, you know, what they call plinking, like someone just kind of shooting for fun and they accidentally hit someone or hit something, or maybe it's teenagers or, you know, who knows? There were kind of, there just wasn't a high level of concern, except among this small group of detectives who were really focused on their belief that there was a canyon shooter and and their fear that it was going to escalate.
2: So it's several months later when there is an arrest. Um, And and the person who gets arrest is, again, uh, appears to have been living there, had a criminal, has a criminal record, um, claims that he's a survivalist and was living there. Um, Explain to me, if you would, how they captured this person and charged him.
1: So. The first thing that happened after Bodet was killed is that the cops were telling everyone the official story from the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department was, okay, fine. You may have heard about these earlier shootings because that was all coming out. They're not connected. There's no forensic connection. We don't have a connection. This is not part of the same thing. But four days before Bodet was killed was the last near miss, the sixth near miss. And it was another car on the Canyon Road. Again, between three and five in the morning, but this time it was the the bullet that was uh, recovered was a nine millimeter bullet, which is the same type of bullet that killed Bodet, which can't be fired from a shotgun. There was a weapon change, but they still were not making any of these connections. None of this was clear, as you're saying. They were telling people, "Don't worry, don't worry." But you know, panic was rising in Malibu, and people were hearing shots in the night. And there's a there's at the very least there's a murderer at large because Bodette is dead. Correct. And and what is going to happen next? So at the end of the summer, there start to be reports of local like businesses around the periphery of the park being burglarized in the middle of the night. And what is being stolen is not, uh, you know, the computers, the cell phones, the wallets, that type of stuff. It's food. And so... One of these businesses puts up a camera and another one of these businesses has a camera up already. And both of those places capture footage of uh, a man dressed all in black, kind of tactical gear is what they describe, um, with a headlamp and, and seemingly a rifle slung over his shoulder. And this person has been breaking in and stealing food. So all of a sudden they've got an armed burglar in the area who's stealing food. This is weird. These things are kind of don't really match up well. There's a lot of wealth in that area. If you're an armed burglar, aren't you going for safes and, you know, prescription drugs and, you know, all that kind of stuff? No, this guy is stealing, you know, Jimmy Dean breakfast sausages. And so this is automatically like everyone's on high alert already because they know that they've got a murderer at large. And then here's this weapon is a special, looks to be a special kind of rifle called a carbine. Which can fire a nine millimeter round. So, this suddenly also raises a concern like, could this be the killer? Could this be Bodette's killer? What ends up happening is that the last break in is at the community center that is literally the next door neighbor of the Lost Hill Sheriff Station. And Two search and rescue people, Sergeant Chewie Wright and one of his uh, man trackers who's trained in you know following trails through the wilderness, go to investigate that burglary. They find broken glass and it's basically like a vending machine has been smashed open with a rock and food, the snacks have been taken out of the vending machine. Um, they follow with a the dog. They follow that scent and they... And they also see a boot print that matches the odd um, shape and style of a boot print that had been seen at another business that had been burglarized. One of the ones that had put up a camera after some incidents and they follow it up into the hills behind the sheriff station. Sun goes down. They have to stop the search. The next day they're able to get a larger team out there and they capture the drifter at his camp. His name is Anthony Rauda. He's got the carbine on him. He's got nine millimeter ammo on him and um, they bring him in on proba- weapons and probation violation charges. Cause he does have this criminal history. He's not supposed to have weapons or ammunition. And after um, the, after basically after he's sentenced for his, his probation and weapons violations, he's then charged with the murder of Bodette and A slew of other attempted murders and the armed burglaries. So, by this time, a lot of people in Malibu have completely lost trust in law enforcement because they feel they were lied to, that the shootings weren't connected. They feel that there was a law enforcement cover up. They don't know why nobody ever warned or put out any information in the park or from law enforcement um, about the presence of a shooter there, which, you know, if there was a rapist in the area, They probably would have put that on the local news. Um, If there were mountain lion attacks in California State Park, they would have posted. But there was a known, you know, there was, well, I should say there were known shootings Mm -hmm. and nobody was warned. So, So a lot of people started to say, oh, isn't that convenient? You just picked up the drifter who lived behind the station.
2: In the court appearances that he's had, he has certainly manifested a lot of aggression. And he's had to wear um, like, a, like a beekeeper's hood, if you will, because he keeps trying to bite and spit at people. But I got to tell you, he's doing himself no favors with the way he is acting. Um, and I know that you have developed some communications with him, which is what I'm really curious about, because there's, there are the images which I see uh, from court, that frighten me and make me think, you know, yeah, he does look like a guy who's been living in the woods for years. Um, but you have a different perspective. Well, he's
1: definitely a guy who's been living in the woods for years. Yes. But he, you know, we have to say just loud and clear, he says he's not guilty. So Absolutely. Um, No, no conclusions beyond just speculation can be drawn, but... What my experience? So I started corresponding with him. uh, You know, he's been in custody since October of 2018, Um, and I started corresponding with him soon after that. And you know, I've actually been working on this for almost three years. So there have been a lot of twists and turns in in that dynamic. But um, he's a really intelligent guy. Um, You can tell from his letters. He's not. um, He's sort of. Self taught. He dropped out of high school, I think, in his senior year and did get a GED. uh, Did basic training, infantry training in the Army, left after a couple of months. um, Lived a life of, you you know, came back out to California where he was born. He was born in LA, had spent some of his uh, adolescence in Florida, and then came back out to California, reconnected with his father, and really just seemingly couldn't get along in normal society, just didn't feel at ease, didn't form relationships easily, didn't, you know, didn't have friends or a girlfriend or, you know, couldn't even, he lived periodically on and off with his father and, um, and his father has a, a second family. And really he was, even when living in that household, he really only could Comfortably communicate with his dad is what I've learned from the family that he just was, you know, you could say shy, you could say reserved, you could speculate that there was something else going on. Rauta himself um, has said that he has PTSD and other forms of trauma from abuse at the hands of law enforcement. And this goes to the heart of... uh, One of my theories about what may have happened is that he had this long standing grudge against the Lost Hill Sheriff's Department because he had been in and around that area for decades. And as a homeless person in that area, he'd come into contact with law enforcement quite a bit. He'd also had DUI and was arrested by Lost Hills. I think he has had lifelong struggles with uh, maybe self medicating. Um, But he hated these cops and it's no accident. It puzzled me for so long. Why is he camping right behind the station? What, if he's trying not to be, you know, it is a pretty wilderness type of area. So he might never have been found. Why did he, he burglarize the place next door to the sheriff's station? What's this game? And it just, it feels to me like a cat and mouse, like trying to draw these, these cops who he does not like into his terrain where he's comfortable maybe create some kind of a shootout situation you know who knows this is do you
2: you think that these outbursts in in court where he has to be restrained i mean it's you know he literally has to be restrained to the chair uh, and sometimes at the same time you know um with the protective gear to protect everybody else he has fired his public defenders. He, his last outburst was because he's mad at the judge because he wants to defend himself. He's charged with murder, which is very serious. And if you have someone who may not be able to competently defend themselves, you know what is the greater good? Do you give that pers- person right the benefit of the doubt, innocent until proven guilty, assist them with their defense? Um, I'm trying to figure out, you know, you're, you're painting one picture and I'm seeing another. And they could both be him.
1: Well, I do think that there is a huge disconnect. Um, I I don't think that they are separate pictures. I mean, I am saying that he, from my point of view, he's somebody who can be coherent and he can be incoherent. That's a feature of mental illness. And he's somebody who has struggled with authority ever since, maybe since he left the army, maybe before, I'm not sure but certainly his track record with problems with law enforcement in the area where the crimes that he is now uh, charged with took place, those go back to 2003. So, or even earlier, 2001. So we're talking about, you know, 15, 20 year history of tangling with these same law enforcement entities. And he's enraged and then he goes to jail and then he says he gets beat up in jail and then he says, you know, and then he goes to prison and he's in and out of prison and his mental health situation has only been aggravated by the ways in which he's contacted the system. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't let him off the hook for anything he may have done. It's just a perspective on it, which is yeah. to say, you know, right now, yes, his the criminal case is suspended while his mental, his mental health and his ability to stand trial is evaluated. And the last time I was in court, a couple of weeks ago, he seemed calm, cogent, and respectful. And the judge who kind have gotten sick of him, she's a really patient woman, but she's gotten <laughs> pretty sick of him. Um, she even allowed him to speak. Usually what she's been saying lately is like, I'm not, I see you're waving your hand. I'm not acknowledging you (laughs) because though his hand is strapped down, he can kind of wave it. I'm not going to acknowledge you. You may want to speak through your lawyer. This time, I think she could tell he was in a better place and he had some requests that were, you know, he just had some words to add that were not combative and they were kind of interesting and insightful. You know, he had, the, the medical intervention had been taking place over the previous couple of months. So what I think I saw is someone who was brought back to a baseline mental wellness okay. through whatever interventions had been undertaken. And you think, okay, is this as simple as when he's out in the wilderness, he's not getting medication and he's not talking to psychiatrists and he's got some real problems and then they manifest as this kind of anger, shooting things. Maybe he's he says he's written to me in letters that he's blacked out at times and doesn't know what he's done so is you can kind of paint a picture where it starts to become possible that this person who his family describes as shy and quiet and scared of people who would never do anything like this could become anthony rauto the killer it it starts
2: to So make that's sense. the question. So so of course the most serious charge here is the murder charge and w- the question that you've been asking, and I'm not sure, obviously, that you can answer it, but you certainly have been raising the question. Do, does it appear that authorities have the right person in custody?
1: So what I can say is that a grand jury was convened, um, resulting in an indictment after the criminal charges were filed. There, uh, About six months later, grand juries convened. Eventually, those grand, that grand jury testimony gets unsealed, and I am able to see it, and it says that the sheriff's department weapons expert has declared that there's a match between the rifle, the carbine that Rada was arrested with, and the nine millimeter bullet that was excavated from Tristan Baudette's body. So, grand jury testimony is. Very significant, very powerful, but it is not subjected to cross examination by a defense attorney. So the defense attorney may be able to poke all kinds of holes in that. But for me, that is a significant um, shift in the direction of well, he had the weapon that a, a, a sheriff's department employee is going to testify. Was the is the murder weapon, and that's pretty tight. Here's what's not tight: they didn't, they never found the so-called shotgun for the first five near misses, the ones that used shotgun ammunition. He's still charged with all of those attempt as attempted murders. No shotgun was ever found. The DA supposes that it that Anthony rauta built a weapon, a DIY type of weapon, like a a homemade ghost gun, a zip gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but that zip gun has also never been found. So this, you know, the the evidence linking him to those earlier shootings is more tenuous because they don't have the murder weapon. They have some pipes and some nails that they found at the camp. They have the shells, the, some shotgun shells that look like they were not fired from a manufactured weapon. That look as if they were fired from a from a zip gun, but they do not have an assembled, functional zip gun with all of the in- elements and ingredients that would be needed for that so
2: okay so that's very strong incriminating evidence all of which to be determined at trial and this is going to trial and he has mm-hmm. said repeatedly that he is not guilty that he did not do this he did not kill Tristan Bodet. this area of California obviously it falls victim a lot to massive wildfires and After his arrest, not too long after that, we had a very destructive fire go through the area. Do you believe that really any potentially significant evidence could have been lost in that fire? Yes. (laughs) And if
1: people listen to the podcast, um, which I hope they will, this, you know, i I don't want to spoil it too much, but no. Anthony Rauda's campsite, where he was, um, you know, he had sort of had a dugout with a tarp over it in the hills behind the sheriff station. So, sort of, you know, extra remote and rarely traveled part of Malibu Creek State Park. The fire went right through there. I went there after the fire, after a lot of regrowth, and you know, the the tree trunks are black. The you know the grass was beautiful and bright green because that's what happens after a fire after the rain and then there's you know the new growth is is significant but he was had been in a place that was um really decimated by the fire and the campground too was uh the fire ripped, ripped through there it wasn't it wasn't completely um devastating there but you know the fire also revealed evidence which i think is pretty interesting after the fire it was possible for the search and rescue team to go back to where they suspected he'd been shooting at at cars on the road from and find um, nine millimeter casings that might've been part of the shooting at the the car that was four days before Baudet's killing. So the fire took away evidence and it revealed evidence and it's all pretty complicated. But one thing I can say is that I was supposed to go out to Rauta's camp. I met somebody who right after Rauta was arrested, who said, oh, I know where the camp is. And I said, amazing. Can, like, can, you take, can you show me where it is? And too hard to find on my own. And he said, sure, sure. And he went and he did a little scouting mission because we were going to meet up and he took a bunch of pictures. And then the fire came through. So we said, oh my God, we can't, you know, it was mayhem in Malibu. I mean, you couldn't, the Malibu Canyon Road, which is, you couldn't even drive up there. Um, So months passed and um, I'm looking through the pictures and I know they were taken right before the fire. So I know that whatever's in these pictures is probably gone now. And I see something and it looks to me not an expert, but now I've looked at a lot of images of zip guns and a lot of uh, a lot of the manuals that Rauta himself owned and um, electronic files he had. I was able to find out a lot of what his reading material and his sort of personal library and his personal exposure to plans and diagrams for making zip guns. And he was very interested in zip guns. I saw this piece of wood that had clearly, in this photograph, been manipulated. Was not it was a Manufactured piece of wood, like a two by four, that had cuts out of it that clearly suggested that it could be part of a zip gun. That was not collected by law enforcement. This guy had gone through there when law enforcement was done, and the next day the fire came through and it was made of wood, and there's almost no chance that that thing is still intact. And all that exists is a picture of what could have been potentially really important evidence. But for me, what this is evidence of is what were the homicide detectives looking for or doing? They knew they were looking for a zip gun. They knew they didn't have a zip gun. This thing looks exactly like a zip gun frame. So it was, to me, more revealing about the potential lapses in law enforcement's approach to the case than it was, it can never be used definitively in Anthony Rowdy's case, because it's just a picture. There's mm-hmm. no, you know, it can't be recovered.
2: So this is still, it has not gotten to trial yet. We're still, has, does he even have an attorney yet? Have they figured that out? Well, he does now,
1: you know, he's moved through all the public defenders and, and, uh, and he's, he's, you know, he'll still, I'm sure he'll still ask to represent himself every time he has a chance to speak. But, um, it is now, uh, he now has a lawyer who is a, uh, a private criminal defense attorney who is on the list that um, that basically the court has for uh, representing indigent people who have gone through all the possible public defenders. So it's another way that uh, of having basically a, f- a free lawyer. So, okay. So there well, will be a trial
2: at some point. It's just a matter of getting through all of this.
1: Well, there might not be because if he right now where things are, there should be. But mm-hmm. the 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 DA is quite confident that the, the prosecutor is quite confident that there will be a trial. What is happening right now is that the his mental health had to be evaluated and his ability to stand trial, and one psychiatrist's report conflicted with the other psychiatrist's report. Both the prosecution and the defense get to have a, an evaluation, and they were in conflict. Now I don't know, but I'm just going to hazard a guess that probably the prosecution psychiatrist said he'd be fine to stand trial.
2: I'm going to guess and you're the right.
1: said he wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, so they had to bring in a third person from the, again, from the court list. And so that has been happening over the past couple of weeks. And I will be in court on Monday and we will, it'll be the tiebreaker. We'll find out on Monday whether he's going on trial or not. Do you know the Appalachian uh, killer case? It's just very, very similar. The Appalachian trail killer He just a couple weeks ago, um, he he basically was declared not competent to stand trial. But he and he's going to um, spend you know probably the rest of his life in an institution. And and he's somebody who was brought back to a level of coherence that you know you think if only these interventions could happen before people killed people. Of (laughs) um, course, no,
2: that that is a huge problem.
1: They can do it. They can get, the, you know, the 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 medicine is good and you can get people, a lot of people can be brought to a, a baseline well-being and, and kind of, um, it's just so unfortunate that it takes being on trial for murder to um, actually get those resources applied. But so where it is right now is I'm guessing the trial will start. I'm thinking it may start this summer. There is there is a possibility that on Monday I find out that it was two to one and he's going to an institution,
2: not going to be on trial. So we'll follow that as well. We also want to mention that uh, Tristan's widow, Erica Wu, um, who is raising these two children who were at that crime scene, she is suing L.A. County and the Parks Department for 90 million dollars. For not warning about the other shootings, which then would have given her family more information to make an informed decision and maybe not go to the campsite at that time. So that's also working its way uh, through the legal system, which I always say sometimes it's in the civil court that a lot is revealed. It may not rise to the level of a criminal case but reveals a lot of information about what was really going on at the time. So that's something else to follow. Thank you, Dana, so much for this. It's, it's uh, the deep dive that you've provided us and your observations and the, the details are, I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that we live for, and it's a fascinating case. Thank you so much. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. As I mentioned at the top of the program, we've got a big break in the case of Suzanne Morphew, uh, Owen Michael is here with the latest on that and everything else you're talking about.
3: In this Colorado case, this is actually uh, very close to the uh, the cult case. We have an update to the Suzanne Morphew case, which is out of Poncha Springs in the Maysville area. It's just about five miles west of Salida, which is where the police station where uh, Miguel Lamboy went to report. Wow, is that?
2: Isn't that incredible? I mean, think about it. You have this mom who's been missing since Mother's Day, very suspicious, well-to-do family, and just, you know, a few miles away, the same police department is not only juggling that, but, you know, the man who walks in and says, I have a mummified corpse in my house and, you know, they're holding my child.
3: It's a it's a geographic uh, oddity uh, for sure that there's a, you know, it's a this vortex. Is, this is not a, a hugely populated area of Colorado as well. So, um, yeah, per capita, there's a lot going on here, apparently. Um, this is a Suzanne Morphew for people who uh, may or may not remember this case. She went for a bike ride on Mother's Day last year in 2020. Uh, that was the last time that the 49-year-old mother of two was seen. Her husband, Barry Morphew, uh, has gone public and made public pleas for her return. Um, he also sold the couple's house 10 months after Suzanne disappeared, as we reported back here in, uh, in in March. Well, now Barry Morphew, the husband, has been arrested. and He's charged with first-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and attempting to influence a public servant. He is being held without bond. A lot of people had a lot of uh, uh, things to say about that. Karen G said, "I thought that he knew more than he said. Sad and wasted time for people who went out of their way searching. There were a lot of uh, search and rescue operations to try and find this uh, to to find Suzanne. She still remains missing." Gord R says, "These criminals always think they are so clever to think they can get rid of their spouse for the insurance money or wanting out of their marriage, and the police won't figure it out." Um, That's a common theme we get with uh, a lot of these cases. Of course, we should say Barry Morphew is presumed innocent until unless proven guilty in court. Absolutely. But, uh, you know, like uh, Minnie D says, it's always the husband didn't need Columbo to solve this case. And uh, Delia N says, what's wrong with divorce? Why take a life? So this
2: is a really it's a case that so many of our listeners and viewers have really been following really closely because, again, a, it's always a woman goes missing the girls they have two daughters they were off on some kind of a church camping trip or something like that and um, when he sold the house recently and that's the last time we reported this case, he said it was because the house brought horrible memories. Um and nightmares for his two daughters because of it's the last place that their mom was last seen. And you know, you can look at that and understand that, right? Like that may very well be true. And it was but, but then there were those who thought that's a very suspicious thing. Again, he is innocent until proven guilty. However, we also know that oftentimes in cases like this, and, and Dana, you said this. Just with your case, that most people are killed by people that they know. At the random murders and disappearances do happen, but they are far, you, you know, statistically less likely. Statistically less likely. So I don't think anyone's very surprised with this recent arrest.
3: Not surprised, and as as we all well know, police and uh, investigators always. Go to the husband or the wife first or the person in the relationship, just because, as you say, statistically, um, that's uh, that bears out guilt yeah. a lot. Uh, again, innocent until proven guilty. But we will continue to monitor the case and, uh, you know, check in at Crime dot com for any updates on that. We'll put that out there when we know more.
2: And all our social media, you're always updating that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. But Suzanne hasn't been found. And I think that's really important. We still have not found her. Thanks, Owen. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Well, that's our episode for this week. Dana, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, You know, the, the depth of your work, the authority with which you describe the evidence, and in such a balanced way to look at both sides, a true journalist, and I thank you enormously for sharing that with us. So, people who want to know more, where can they get a copy of your article, which of course everyone can read and then tell us about your podcast and where they can follow you.
1: Thank you so much, Anna. It's been wonderful talking to you. And um, yeah, the article is on the website of the New Yorker magazine. And the podcast is on Apple Podcasts, Lost Hills, uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And it's a production of Western Sound and Pushkin Industries. And you can follow developments in the case and everything else at Lost Hills pod. And there's a bonus episode coming out next week. So we're already into the bonus episodes and we will be following the um, criminal trial or whatever the legal proceedings are for Anthony Rauta as they um, take place. So thank you so much. And I hope you'll go listen to Lost Hills.
2: And Dana, if anybody wants to follow you, do you have a footprint as well somewhere in social media? Yeah, I'm just at Dana Goodyear. So you can
1: find me on Twitter, Instagram, um, any place like that. So,
2: ah, terrific. Okay. It's been a pleasure. You all can find me, Anna G News, everywhere, Anna with one N. You know, I love to comment and interact with you. I can't wait to hear your opinions on both of the cases, but particularly Dana's case that she continues to follow. Also, a programming note, we've started a new series called My Favorite Case, where we have people from the world of crime just talking about their favorite cases and in, in the inside baseball, if you will. Um, they're available now wherever you know you usually find us, so I hope you get a chance to check it out. I call them snackables. It's like a snackable podcast. You can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google a podcast. Of course, watch us on YouTube, subscribe, more than 4 million subscribers. You can get updates and get a newsletter, which Owen always works on at truecrimedaily.com. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime.